If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 31 in a message that I've entitled, Where is your victory? Where is your sting? That great passage of Scripture, uh, those powerful verses that we find in 1 Corinthians 15 where we see that death has been defeated and the sting of death has been removed by Jesus Christ, that death no longer has victory, that Christ Jesus is the one who has victory. And what we see in verses 1 through 31 of Genesis chapter 5 is we see a genealogy that connects the lineage of Seth to Noah. So Noah is going to be the next individual that Genesis is really going to highlight and his life. And we are going to start to get into what God did in and through Noah, in and through the building of the ark and the flood of judgment that came upon the face of the earth. We'll get into that next week. But we see that there is a tie between Seth and Noah. And we see that through this genealogy, we are leading our way to the connection of Noah. But there is a phrase of three words that you're going to see appear 13 times in Genesis 5. You see in verse 8, it says, Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And you're going to see that phrase over and over and over again in the fifth chapter of Genesis, and he died. And he died. Verse 11, Enosh uh, his days were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 17, thus all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Now we read about a man named Enoch in verses 21 through 24. And verse 24 talks about an individual who is only one of two individuals in all of Scripture, all of known history, that never died. He was just called home to be with the Lord. It says in verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. In verse 27, it says, thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Verse 31, thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and then he died. That, that phrase, and he died, appears 13 times in this passage of Scripture. Today is going to be a little bit different than a typical sermon that, that I would preach. T today, I really don't have any points. That doesn't mean that the message is pointless. It just means that I don't necessarily have any points. The topic that we're going to look at is pretty morbid in nature because we're going to talk about death. We're going to take an opportunity for us to look and examine some eschatological aspects of Scripture. This is a lot of uh, probably more of an informational sermon than I typically preach. However, I, I believe that good theology leads to good methodology. And that doctrine and theology are important. And for us to understand what the Bible teaches about death, what the Bible teaches about life after death, and also in relation to that, how we live that out, so what do our lives look like before death? The idea of death used to truly frighten me. In fact, I can remember my first sophomore year. Now, when you have to preface your underclassmen grade with, with a number, uh, you, you, that tells you maybe just a little bit about my uh, uh, abilities in school, if you will. But I remember my first sophomore year, we had off-campus lunch. 
So you could walk off of campus to go to lunch. And right down from my high school, there were really three eating options that you had. You had Subway, you had Pizza Hut, and then right across the highway, and their burgers were good enough for you to play Frogger and dodge the, the cars on the highway to get to, was a hamburger place called Mama Jack's. And Mama Jack's made, see, y'all don't know about Mama Jack's, but let me tell you something. You wish you knew about Mama Jack's because Mama Jack's made a fantastic hamburger. But I remember one day I sat down in Mama Jack's. I will never forget this because I don't think I've ever had a panic attack before in my life, and I've never had a panic attack since. But in that day and in, uh, in that moment, I had a legitimate panic attack. I couldn't breathe, started freaking out. People around me started freaking out. I remember I sat down to have a lunch at Mama Jack's with Jimmy Goldrick. I'll, ne I'll never forget it. And somehow the discussion of death came uh, into our conversation. And in that moment as I was sitting there, I was thinking, you know what? I, I, I probably got 65, maybe 70 years left here on this earth, and then I'm going to die. And it feel, felt like my throat just started to seize up. And I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't think about that, and I, would, I couldn't think about anything else but that, and it just started to consume me. And I was freaked out by it. And I would think about that a lot. Throughout my life, I would dwell upon the reality that, man, I'm going to die one day, and I had no hope. That was it, right? They would just put me in a box. They put me in the ground, and that was all it was for my life. But when I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I understood the doctrine of death and I understood what God teaches about life after death, that sting of death, that fear of death was removed. Now, there's something absolutely beautiful when you come to a place where you can rest in the reality as a follower of Jesus Christ that this world will one day give way to eternal life. There's something that is absolutely freeing in that, that when you get to the point that you're no longer scared to die, then you get to a point that you're no longer scared to live. And you can truly live your life for God Almighty because you know the grave is not the end. Because see, the grave looms over so many individuals that we think that we've got to go, go, go. We've got to do, do, do. We've got to bye, bye, bye. We, we've got to, because at the end of this moment, that's my life. And I got to make my life count for something. And so this, this thing of death looms over us, and it causes us to live our life a certain way. The Scripture says we don't have to live life because we already have victory in Christ Jesus. And death is just a doorway that leads to eternal life. I pray that today in our time that we spend together, you will understand this aspect. Death is inevitable told you is a little morbid. Death is inevitable. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to dwell upon that. We like to count our, our, our days or we like to count our life in years, but Proverbs tells us that we need to number our days. See, tomorrow is not promised to any of us. And when we understand what the Bible teaches about death, we understand what is after death, uh, then it truly impacts the way that we live our lives. It should. But I pray that you also have sealed in your hearts today when you walk out of here the reality that death is not omnipotent. Death is not all-powerful. There is someone that is greater and stronger than death, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
Now, we, may, we, we all will face death at some point in time in our lives, but there is someone that is greater than death because death is an omnipotent, Jesus is. Now, where did death come from? We were introduced to that aspect of the fallen, broken world just a few weeks ago when we were studying Genesis together. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God set the curse of death on humanity. So we realize that death ravages this world, not because it is more powerful than God, but because Almighty God has made death the penalty for our sin. That's what Romans 6.23 tells us. Romans 6.23 tells us this reality. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in this verse, we see the inevitability of death because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we see the victory over that death. We see the victory over sin. We see that there is an eternal life that is extended to all those that will receive it in faith in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9.27 will teach us of the reality that we all die once. That's why I have a hard time when... when when I hear individuals say, I died and I went to heaven and I was brought, or I died and I went to hell and I, I came back. Well, Scripture says you only die once. For the way it says that, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And once we die, there's a judgment. Now, judgment to what? Well, Scripture teaches us that it all depends on who you say Jesus Christ is. If you say that Jesus Christ is king, if you say that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you will be judged at the bema seat of Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ, if you reject his sacrificial atoning work on the cross, then you will be judged at the great white throne of judgment. But all will be judged either upon the basis of their own works or upon the basis of what you did with the finished work of Jesus Christ and the salvation that was given to you through your faith in Jesus. But all face judgment, but let's look at the angle of an individual that were to die without having placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, what the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that once you die, you face judgment, and then you will go to a place called Sheol, and Sheol is the present hell. Now, we don't like to talk about hell in church. Oftentimes, there are individuals that bristle when we start talking about hell because we don't want to dwell on the reality that there is a very real place that individuals who reject Jesus Christ will spend all of eternity in. We don't want to hear about that. We want all the flowers. We want all the fluff. We want all the cotton candy. We want all of the sugar when we come and gather in a place like this. We don't want to hear any of those things, but yet it was one of the key doctrines and themes that Jesus Christ spoke about over and over and over again. It's important for us to know. It's important for us to understand what the Bible teaches about this reality. Now, sometimes Sheol will be confused with the idea that that's the grave, that everybody goes to Sheol. I don't think the Bible teaches that. There's a Hebrew word. There's another Hebrew word for grave called kibar, and kibar is the grave. Uh, Sheol is the present hell. You say the present hell, what does that mean? Well, the present hell will one day give way to the eternal hell. We read about that in Revelation 27 through 15. We read about the great white throne of judgment. Now, Sheol is the Hebrew word for the present hell. There is a Greek word for the present hell called Hades. And in Revelation 20, 14 through 15, 
God's word tells us this. Then death and Hades, or death and Sheol, were thrown into the lake of fire. You see that? They're individuals that are already in death and Hades. They're already in death and Sheol. And you know what happens to them after the great white throne of judgment? It is emptied out, and they are thrown into the lake of fire. They're not thrown into the lake of fire beforehand. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So all those that go to the present hell will one day, after the great white throne of judgment, be thrown and cast into the hell that we would typically think of, the lake of fire. Now, that doesn't mean Sheol is a place of non-existence or disembodied state where, where you just don't know what is transpiring. It is a place of tor- torment. It is a place of punishment. It is a place that you do not want to be because you are separated from God Almighty in that point. But what about for a believer? Because remember, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of eternal life, the gift of God is eternal life. Do faith in Christ Jesus. So for the believer, we can say, just as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, as soon, uh, right before he was uh, to be killed and, and hung for treason, for standing up against Hitler and the Nazi regime, he wrote to a friend and he said this, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. So what is death for the believer? It's just the beginning of life. It's the beginning of what it is that we were created for in the very beginning before the fall, to be in perfect harmony and fellowship with God Almighty in a world that is free of sin and sickness and disease and pain and suffering, in a kingdom that will be no need for a prison, a kingdom that has no need for a hospital, a kingdom that has no need for a cemetery, a kingdom that has no need for a police force, a kingdom that has no need for any of those things because sin has been completely eradicated and dealt with. So for a, a believer, it's just a doorway into eternal life. When we take our last breath here, we take our first breath in God's kingdom. An old Presbyterian pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse His wife passed away when his three children were very young. And he was driving towards the funeral of his wife. And they came to a stoplight and a large 18-wheeler truck pulled up next side of them and cast this huge shadow over their truck. And he's trying to find a way that he can minister to his children. He's trying to find a way that he can uh, help them to understand that, that although they mourn, they don't have to mourn like those with no hope. And so he asked his children, he said, would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? And the, young, uh, the youngest daughter said, well, by the shadow of the truck, of course. And he said, so too is it for the life of every believer. Jesus Christ was hit by the truck of death so that we would only be hit by the mere shadow. Because what it gives way to is something of greater substance than you could ever dream or imagine. Because it gives way to God Almighty. It gives way to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, where we can worship him face to face. So what happens to an individual when they place their faith in Jesus Christ and then that day comes that the Lord calls them home? Well, they go to paradise. They go to present heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.8 speaks of this reality as well. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
Now, when we think about our loved ones that have gone on before us, we think about individuals that are now residing in paradise. They are now in present heaven because one day present heaven will give way to eternal heaven. Luke 23, 43 speaks of the reality of the thief that was on the cross that was uh, uh, crucified next to Jesus. He places his faith in Jesus Christ, and this is what Jesus Christ says. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, hey, in a week from now, maybe you make it. He didn't say, hey, you got to go to this place called purgatory, and then uh, if you pay for, for your sins long enough, then you'll be able to enter into heaven. He says, no, 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 today you will be with me in paradise. Notice, he didn't have to be baptized to be saved. He didn't have to take Jesus and a lot of his good works to be saved. It was solely his faith in Jesus Christ that was sufficient for him to enter into paradise, to enter into heaven. Now, many individuals wrestle with the question, and I can't be dogmatic about it, but I can point to a pretty good uh, uh, picture uh, in Scripture from this verse right here of where Jesus went the three days that he laid in the tomb. Some individuals will teach that Jesus went into hell and he led out this captive army out of hell. I don't believe that is what the Bible teaches. I believe what the Bible teaches is that he went into paradise. He went into heaven. He'd already defeated sin and death. He already has the keys. He already is over and removed the sting of death. You see this beautiful reality that he told them today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Where was Jesus? Wherever this guy was going. Where was this guy going? Paradise present heaven. Luke 22, 20, Luke 16, 22 through 23 talks about, about this truth and about this reality of there being a present heaven and a present hell, and, and they're separated by a chasm that cannot be broached. The rich man also died and was buried and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, one day, Abraham's side or paradise, what we would understand as heaven, will give way to the eternal heaven, and that will come when the new heavens and the new earth are brought to this earth. So oftentimes we think of heaven as going to be a place of eternal rest, and that is going to, we think, upwards. But the truth of the matter is what the Bible teaches is that heaven will actually be on this earth that is completely restored, and all sin has been eradicated, that this world will be transformed, and this world will be made new. And it talks about heaven, the new heavens and the new earth coming down. And so much of what heaven will look like will be what we see already here, but perfect and without any sin and without any spot or wrinkle whatsoever. Now, one thing that I, I want to address is um, some of you may come from a Catholic background. Some of you may have uh, Catholic friends. Um, I, I don't try to um, talk bad about those within the Catholic faith, but I do like to look at doctrine, and I do like to make sure that individuals that that uh, we would understand what it is that the Bible teaches. What they teach in Catholicism is something that was adopted back at the Council of Trent. And at the Council of Trent, they adopted something as infallible. In other words, it is on par with God's word. It's just as infallible as the Holy Scriptures. And they say this, if anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, or in other words, after you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the guilt or your sin is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out 
to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened. Let him be anathema. In other words, let them be excommunicated. What they are saying and what they have adopted is that there's this place called purgatory that you have to go to, to cleanse you of all of the sins that you committed after you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And you can't get out of purgatory and into heaven until you've paid the penalty for all of those sins. Now, do you understand why theology is important? Because if you flesh that out, what they are saying is the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross was not enough to pay the full payment of your sins. You see how important of a theology and a doctrine that that is for us to understand That if Jesus Christ, if your faith in Jesus Christ is not enough to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus and to forgive you all of your sins, then it's Jesus plus works. But yet God's word says emphatically over and over and over again that we're only saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's it. It's not your works. It's not you going to purgatory and hopefully people can pray you out of that and pray you into heaven. It's all based upon Jesus Christ. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. That's it. It's important for us to understand that reality. It's important for us to understand that truth. It's important for us to understand that Christ paid for our sins in full. And how many of your sins were in the future when Christ died? There's some pretty old people in Genesis 5, 1 through 31, but they, weren't, they didn't even live over 2,000 years. So how many sins of yours were in the future when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? How many sins of yours were in the future when Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross? Every last one of them. He paid for all of them, and he paid for all of them in full. Now, let, let me look uh, with you just a little bit at some eschatological uh, um, underpinnings of what it is that that. I believe scripture teaches. Now, some individuals, we're going to be a little bit different on some of the end time uh, timeline of how we come to a conclusion of this reality. But for a believer, what does that look like? What does that look like for, for, for us? Now, we don't have to break fellowship over secondary issues or tertiary issues. And I believe many things within the eschatological debate are secondary or tertiary issues. And when I say eschatological, I'm just talking about the study of the end times, of how things are going to to, to end uh, as God's word unfolds. So after an individual uh, dies that has placed their faith in Christ Jesus, they're, they're absent from the body and they're to be present with the Lord. Now, the next great event within the life of the church is what's known as the rapture. It's the next great event. Nothing has to happen for the rapture to take place. Nothing else. There's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled. There's no other acts of anything that have to transpire. The rapture could literally happen before I finish speaking. The angel is going to blow the trumpet, and the church is going to be raptured out of the earth. The church will no longer be here for the seven years of great tribulation. And sometimes individuals uh, want to talk about how skinny I am. I'm just trying to help the Lord out. So when that angel blows, I'm, I'm going to be one of the first ones to go, okay? That angel is going to inhale to get ready to blow that trumpet, and, and I'm up away in the sky, okay? Sweet by and by, that good Great getting up morning, amen. I'll fly away. Yeah, probably a good wind, and I'll fly away too. Right now, you know what I mean. You'll think the ra- is the rapture happening. There he goes. 
Nothing else has to happen for the rapture to take place. Now, now think about this. There are many things within Scripture that I would have longed to have been a personal witness to. I think about the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That night that the, the shepherds were in that field and all of a sudden the, the night sky busts forth with angels and a heavenly host singing and the light that just penetrated over them. Would have loved to have been there and seen that. Would have loved to have seen Mary and Joseph holding God incarnate, God in the flesh, holding Jesus Christ on that, that first Christmas morning. And I would have loved to have been there that, that day. Those four friends lowered that paralyzed man through the roof before Jesus. And this man who wasn't able to walk, Jesus heals and he's able to walk out of the very place he had to be lowered down into. I would have loved to have been able to be there and to see that transpire. For Jesus to walk on water, man, I would love to see in the middle of that storm, I would love to see Jesus coming to the disciples in the boat in the middle of that storm as he's walking on water. I would have loved to have seen Jesus heal the blind man and restore his sight. As important of an event in the life of the history of this world was, I don't know that I would have wanted to see the crucifixion of my Savior. I saw the passion of the Christ one time. I have no desire to ever see that again. Amen? Anybody else? Uh, Once was enough for me. I could barely take it the first time. But you know what I would have loved to have seen on that third day when that stone rolled away? And Jesus just stepped out. I, I, I think he stepped out with a little swag. I do. I just, I don't know. That's just me. I think, I think he stepped out with a little bit. Like, I've been telling you. I've been telling you all for three years. Just give me three days. Just give me three days, and I'll show you I can defeat sin and death. But you know, none of the disciples were there. That's one of the saddest things about that first Easter morning that I reflect upon the ones that he had been living with, the ones that he had told for three years, in three days I will rise, and he steps out, and they're nowhere to be found. How many things in your life right now feel like a tomb and a stone has been rolled in front of you? Maybe your marriage. Maybe you have prodigal children. Maybe your job. Maybe your health. And everything the enemy is speaking to you. It's, it's gone. Give up on it. That stone has already been rolled in front of you. Give up in all of that. Just, get, just give up. Move on. It's over. And how many of us have given into that lie and we've left the very place that Jesus is about ready to bust through and a miracle is about to happen because he gets all the glory for us to see who he is and what he has done. Don't you dare walk away from in front of something that seems like has a stone been moved in front of it because God can do more than you could ever dream or imagine. You stay put. You stand firm. Keep your faith in Christ and watch what Jesus does. But the next great event of the church, we're all going to get a front row seat to. We'll all be at the rapture. Those that have died and gone on before, they're going to be a part of the rapture. Those of us that are alive, we're going to be a part of the rapture. We get a front row seat to the next great event of the church. You're going to be there, and I'm going to be there if you place your faith in Christ Jesus.
then uh, the Bema Seat of Christ, that's where all believers will go, and they will receive their, their rewards for how it is they stewarded the salvation that was given to them through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about the Bema Seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 14.10 speaks of this reality as well. It says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Now that is a sobering verse of scripture. For each and every one of us, one day we will stand before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you know what Paul writes to the church in Rome? It says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We all will stand before the Lord one day and give an account of how we stewarded our salvation. And guess what? None of us earned it. We were all given it to us by grace, and we, were, we received it through faith in Christ Jesus. Nobody is better than anybody else. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one needs Jesus any more than anybody else. No one needs Jesus any less than anybody else. We all are desperately wicked. We all have fallen short of the glory of God, and apart from the grace of God, we'd have absolutely no hope. So why are we judging one another? Christian than that individual is. I went on mission trips. I tithe every week. Look at them. They don't, they never been on a mission trip. They don't do this. They don't do that. And we like to try to compare. Listen, the only person you're to compare yourself to is Jesus Christ. That's it. And guess what? We all fall short. None of us add up. So why do you despise your brother? Why, why, do we, why do we have such a hard time of showing that love that God has poured out into our hearts to one another? Knowing we're all going to stand before the Lord one day. We're all going to give an account. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all only been saved by faith in Christ Jesus and his redeeming, atoning work on the cross. That ought to produce, you see how theology produces methodology? If we understand that, if we understand that one day we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give an account for the salvation that we've been entrusted. All right, when we think about stewardship, oftentimes when we think about stewardship, we think about finances. But how are you stewarding your salvation? What are you doing with it? How are you utilizing? How are you leveraging the fact that the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells in you as a believer of Jesus Christ? Are you walking in the flesh? Or are you walking in the spirit? Are you sowing to the flesh? Or are you sowing to the spirit? Those are questions that we need to ask ourselves in light of the reality that one day we will stand before the Lord. And I don't know about you, but the thing that I want to hear the most is job well done, good and faithful servant. Theology will dictate methodology. Then I believe we're going to have a big feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. While the great tribulation is going on, there's the, the Bema Seat of Christ where we're being judged for how we stewarded our, our salvation. And then there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9 tells us about this. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, I firmly believe 
when you, when you read in John's gospel and John swims out of the boat and he swims over to the shore and Jesus is there, uh, that famous passage where he, he asks him if he loves him three times and he reinstitutes him and he forgives him and he brings him back into fellowship. And, and you remember that, that Jesus had a fish fry going on on the beach? We know Jesus is Baptist because there was a fish fry. We know it. So at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I'm telling you that there's going to be some fried chicken and some potato salad. I just believe it. I don't know what's on your plate, but fried chicken and potato salad. And I don't want none of that mayonnaise-based because the Lord knows good potato salad is mustard-based. That's right. Uh, I, you might not be saved if you didn't. I'm just telling you. Yeah, we'll have an invitation down uh, here in just a moment. So. After the marriage supper of the Lamb, immediate following that, Revelation 19.11 is the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19.11 tells us, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And when he comes for the battle of Armageddon, uh, all of the saints are clothed in pure white linen. We're right behind Jesus. And we get to be a part of that battle as we see Jesus defeat all of his enemies. I had an opportunity to go to Israel a few years ago and got to see the place that Scripture says the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. It's the same place where Elijah called down fire against all of the prophets of Baal. Uh, and here is uh, where the Battle of Armageddon is said to take place. And you can't really see it necessarily on, on the screen. But, but right here, there are these two little white lines. Uh, there is an Israeli Air Force base that is actually underground. They land their planes on that runway, and then they disappear into the ground. There's, a, there's an Air Force hangar right underneath this area right here where supposedly the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. I find that pretty fascinating how God's Word always comes to life. And, you know, it talks about that there's an angel that says, uh, call all the birds to come and have this great feast because of all the dead bodies that will be laid out uh, that were in opposition against Jesus Christ. You know, just a couple miles from here, there, there is a ossuary. There is, there is a, a, a place where they are breeding a certain type of birds that were decimated and almost gone extinct in Israel. And they're breeding these birds and they are bringing these, these individual or the, these, these, this specific type of bird uh, into a, a, a replenished population uh, right, right there a few miles away. You know what kind of bird it is? Vultures. Now, what kind of bird eats human flesh? What kind of bird eats dead things? Vultures. And yet, only a couple miles from this place, they are starting to replenish the population of vultures in the very spot where there is an Israeli Air Force base underground. God's word, it is true. I believe it with awe of my heart. And then the millennial kingdom, then the new heavens and the new earth. So I tell you, I tell you all of that. We may disagree in the timeline of those uh, various uh, aspects of scripture. Uh, but really, I, I want to lay the groundwork of all of that to say death is inevitable. There is life after death, and that depends on uh, what you do with Jesus Christ and his sacrificial atoning work on the cross. But what I really want to speak to you about in the remaining moments that we have together is life before death. In other words, what are you doing with your life right now? 
In between the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ and in the moment that the church will be raptured out of the earth, what are you doing with your life right now? How are you living for God? How are you spending your time? How are you spending your finances? How are you spending all of those talents that have been entrusted into you? What are you doing in the reality that one day you will either face death or God will rapture you out of this earth? What are you doing? It's a sobering question, is it not? Oftentimes when I lay my head down at night, I ask myself, Two questions. How much of my day was spent advancing the kingdom of self and how much of my day was spent advancing the kingdom of God? And oftentimes, I have to admit that the vast majority of my day was spent advancing the kingdom of self. And you know what? God says you get your reward here on earth. You get, you get your reward for that. And it only stays with you as long as you're here on this earth. Because when you die, so do all of those things that you spent all of your time working for. They're gone too. But there are eternal treasures. See, when you live to advance the kingdom of God, there are eternal treasures that are eternal in value. Eternal in worth. So why would you live for something that will only last as long as you will? And not live for the things that will last forever. Second Peter 3.11 asks this question to us. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. In other words, this world is going to give way to the new heavens and the new earth. That what we see and experience on this earth will be dealt with. It will be eradicated. It will be done. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. In light of the reality that God will return, in light of the reality there is life after death, and all those that have rejected Christ will go to a very real place called hell, and all those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, a very real place called heaven, how should you live out your lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So many individuals are living their life waiting for their ship to come in when we should be living our lives waiting for our Christ to return. We will stand before him and we will give an account. What are you doing with your life before you face your death? Here's why this is so important. I believe three things. When you truly understand the doctrine of death and life after death, when you truly understand the doctrine of hell and of heaven, three things occur. One, it clarifies your worship. It will clarify your worship. Secondly, it will purify your motivation. And thirdly, it will intensify your urgency. See, when you understand the doctrines of heaven and hell, when you understand the doctrine that you are only saved by Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ, then when you come in here with brothers and sisters in Christ and, and we're singing songs of praise, you can't do so. You can't do so lightly because now you understand what you were saved from and what you were saved to. 
Now you understand it wasn't anything that you did, but everything that Jesus did. And because of his sacrificial death on the cross, I was saved from hell and I was given eternal life, not because of anything I've done, but because of everything Jesus has done. So how can you come into an environment like this and be quiet? It clarifies your worship. You understand who you're worshiping. You're understanding why you're worshiping him. And you also understand that worship, it doesn't just consist of three songs on a Sunday morning and an individual preaching for an hour. But that worship is a life that is lived each and every moment of each and every day in response to the reality that we were saved from hell and given heaven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. But it also purifies our motivation. So why we do what we do? What motivates you to get up in the morning? Is it to earn the next dollar? Is it to advance your name in some kind of arena? What motivates you to do what you do each day? When you understand what it is that you've been saved from, what it is that you've been saved to, and the reality that Jesus Christ is the only one that was able to do that for you, it ought to purify your motivation to say that this day is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it, and I'm going to do everything unto the excellency of God Almighty, and I want him to get all of the glory because the reality and the truth is he and he alone is the one that has conquered sin and death. So it purifies your motivation of why it is you do what you do. Thirdly, it intensifies your urgency. If you understand that Jesus Christ can come back at any moment, then we need to live with a life of urgency to take the good news of Jesus Christ to our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, and our family because we are not promised tomorrow and neither are they. But yet, don't we live our lives like that? We'll always get that other opportunity until you don't. We'll always have a chance until you don't. Don't wait for that Thanksgiving meal when all the family gathers around to have that conversation with that cousin or that aunt or that uncle or whoever that family member is. You're not promised tomorrow. Take this opportunity right now for those that you know that are in your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them because if they die without having placed their faith in Christ Jesus, they are separated from God for all of eternity in a very real place called hell. We ought to live with an urgency that says, I don't know if I have tomorrow. And I don't know if my neighbors, my friends, my family, or my coworkers do either. So today, this very day, I'm going to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Listen, in life, you're one of three things. You're either a roadblock, you're a stumbling block, or you're a building block. You're one of those three. You're either a roadblock preventing people from coming to God Almighty, that you're completely opposed to God Almighty and the things of God, and you do everything in your power to prevent people from hearing the gospel and coming to know Jesus Christ. Or you're a stumbling block by professing Christ to be the Savior of your life, but you live in such a way that it's completely foreign to God's word, and it gives individuals the impression that they can give their life to Jesus Christ and then go back and live exactly how the world is lived. Or you're a building block. You're one of those precious stones that First Peter talks about. That you help build up the kingdom of God for his glory and for his glory alone. 
Now, I conclude with this illustration. And like I told first service, when I say conclude, I mean I'm probably going to talk for another 15 minutes, okay? Anybody give me five more minutes? I'm just asking for five. Anybody give me five more minutes? Anybody? I see, I see five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Okay, 30 minutes. I'm, I'm good. All right. Thank you all. Appreciate that next 30 minutes. Now, I don't watch a lot of TV anymore. I used to watch a lot of TV when I, when I was a kid. And one of the shows that I used to, to watch, my, my mom at this time in my life, she worked two jobs. My dad was a very hard worker, and so he'd come home, he'd eat dinner, and he'd go to sleep. And so I was usually kind of in the house by myself. And I would watch Unsolved Mysteries. You remember that show, Unsolved Mysteries? You remember the theme music to Unsolved Mysteries? Freaked me out every time. Every time the Unsolved Mysteries would come on, that theme music would come on, would freak me out. But I had to watch it because my neighbor was a little strange. What if he was a murderer? <laughs> I needed to know these things. It could be him. And I got to know it. So I sat there and I watched it. It freaked me out. But there was another show that came on right around that time. It was on for a couple of years. And what they did is they remade some of the old Alfred Hitchcock episodes. And I remember this one specific episode. It freaked me out still to this day. It was about this man who had killed his wife, and he was arrested, and he was sent to prison for life. And he was trying to find a way to escape prison. And he befriended the mortician. In the prison, they had a morgue, and right outside of the prison gates, they had a cemetery. And what would happen is when a prisoner would die, they would ring this bell throughout the prison to let everybody know that an individual had died. And then what would happen is the next day, they would see this dead prisoner being wheeled out or taken out uh, in this coffin across the street to the cemetery, and then they would be buried. This mortician had a health problem, and this rich man convinced him that if he helped him escape prison, that he would pay for the surgery that he needed, and he would give him some money to set him up and to help him going forward in his life. And so this man found himself in a tough position, and he agreed. And one day, as time went on, all of a sudden that bell rang that signified that somebody in the prison had died. And so the plan went into effect. And this man, he waited till nighttime, and he snuck through the prison, almost gets caught a couple of times, and he makes his way into the morgue, and it's pitch black in there except for this coffin that is sitting on this table, and he climbs up into the coffin, and he lays down, and he puts the lid on top of the coffin, and he's laying there. And the next thing he feels, he feels this coffin being lowered down onto some type of gurney, and then he is wheeled out of the prison. Then he feels the coffin being lowered into the ground, and then he hears the dirt being poured on top of the coffin. And the plan was that later on that night, the mortician would come back, would dig him out, free him from the coffin, and that he would go on about his life. And in fact, he had no intention of paying this man whatsoever. And now he hears the dirt being poured on top of his coffin, and he knows, I made it. I did it. And inside the coffin, he has this book of matches. And you would see him in the coffin. He would strike a match, and he'd be laughing, and he'd be just talking about what he was going to do when he got free from this and all the money that, that he had and what he was going to do. And that match would go out. And he'd light another match. 
And this time he'd be panicky. What's taking him so long? I knew I shouldn't have trusted him. Where is he? Uh, he's going to let me down. He, he, he's not going to show up. What, what has happened? That match would go out. Next match. He'd feel good about it. Oh, he's just delayed. Something, something just keeping him. But he'll be here. There must have been people that were around that were seeing him. And so he's just waiting until the coast is clear. And he would do this over and over through a full book of matches. And then he gets down to his last match. And he's sweating. He can hardly breathe now. It is way past when the man should have returned to dig him up and to free him. And he's trying to jostle around. And he's trying to get comfortable within the coffin. And he strikes the last match. And he comes face to face with the individual that is in the coffin. And it was the mortician. Nobody was coming. Because he placed his faith and his trust in somebody who had no more power over the grave than he did. When you strike the last match of your life, has the very one and the very thing you've put your faith and trust in going to be in the coffin with you? Or have you placed your faith and trust in the one who has defeated the grave? The only one that has defeated the grave. Whose faith, who have you placed your faith in when that last match of your life has been struck?